Hi everyone, welcome here again. Hope you've had a great week. And uh, I just wanna talk about three things, three announcements before we get started on the message today. First of all, I wanna say a huge thank you. Uh, last week we came to you just for uh, a little bit of giving. We needed to get some equipment and stuff started up. Uh, we needed 15 to $20,000. You guys gave enough within uh, one day. We finally had to just shut it down on the weekend because it was, it was over what we needed. Thank you so much. Uh, for giving, for being so generous, uh, for being so quick to generous, helps us out a ton. Uh, so, so good. God is good, uh, and it's fun to give and, and fun to do this together. Second thing, don't forget, I'm going to keep saying it every week. Four weeks from now, uh, March 25th, is uh, Vision Night, and on Vision Night, it's a Thursday night, just like we do these uh, every week, and we're going to unveil the church name. We're going to unveil the, the specific church vision and strategy and structure, uh, all of that stuff. So really looking forward to that. Save the date, March 25th. You don't want to miss. It'll also be a chance for people to sign up if there's places you're interested in getting involved. We'd love to hear from you that night and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, lastly, we're, uh, we're taking a two-week break from our Genesis 1 to 11 series, our Identity in Genesis series in the first 11 chapters, and uh, just to, and to talk about hell. And just a reminder, I cannot get through nearly all of the material in two messages, okay? And so I've written a comprehensive paper, took our advisory team through it over a space of a couple of weeks. We really dug into it, prayed over it, studied it. And, uh, and so that paper is on the website, christerkson.com, and you can go there and check it out. More than 120 passages of scripture are referenced. So don't forget, check it out and, uh, and study the Bible. In, in all of this, the most important thing is not what does Chris Dirksen think about hell, not what does somebody else think about hell. The most important thing is what does the Bible say about hell? I, I don't have any authority Okay, uh, as, a, as a person, I'm just another human being like you guys. I study the word, that's my gift, that's my calling, that's my passion, but I don't have any authority in and of myself. All of the authority is hearing God's word, and so we're studying what does God's word say about hell, all right? And last week we looked at, uh, I'll just, a couple of, just a little quick review and then we'll pray, but last week we, we looked at the fact that in the early church, the first 300 years uh, after Jesus died and, and rose again, the, the early church had three different views, three prominent different views about hell, okay? All of them were common. It wasn't like today where eternal conscious torment was the dominant view. In the early church, there was three prominent views. The first one was universalism. You know, hell is a purifying fire. Uh, universalists in the early church believed that people who rejected Jesus would be cast into hell and they would suffer there for differing amounts of time, but that God would use that suffering to bring those people to himself. And eventually all in hell would repent and all would be saved. Okay. So that was a view that was very prominent in the early church. Second view that was prominent in the early church was what we now can call traditionalism, which is the idea that hell is a tormenting fire, that people are cast into hell and kept there forever and ever and ever uh, in torment uh, without, you know, without end. And then the last view, which was very prominent in the early church, okay, and has, uh, you know, all three of these views have existed in the church um, throughout history, but this view, annihilationism, is the one that I have come to believe and because of what I see the scriptures teaching. Okay, and that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. But annihilationism is the view that hell is a consuming fire. 
that those who reject Jesus are thrown into the fires of hell and they're consumed and destroyed and gone forever, okay? Now, before we pray, I just want to notice uh, a couple of points of agreement between all the views of hell and then the one, and then a point of disagreement, okay? So the early Christians, I'm going to put these all up. Uh, we all, whatever your view of, of hell is, whatever the view in the early church, we all agree about a couple of things. First of all, we all agree that hell is a real place, okay? We all agree that hell is a real place, okay? I believe that. The Bible clearly teaches it. Traditionalists, annihilationists, and, you know, early church universalists uh, all believe that, okay? Secondly, we all agree that hell is an awful place. You know, even early church universalists who believe that everyone would eventually be saved saw hell as an awful place that, and that some people would have to spend much time there in torment before they would come to a place of, of repentance. That's, a, that's an awful thought. Annihilationists also believe that hell is an awful, awful place, okay? To be cast in, into the fires of hell and destroyed is an awful thing, okay? Um, the place where we disagree, so we all agree hell is real, we all agree hell is awful, okay? Where we disagree is in the final result, okay? The early church universalists uh, believe that everyone would eventually be saved out of hell. Traditionalists believe that those who reject Jesus will continually forever and ever and ever and ever remain in hell. And annihilationists believe that those cast into hell will be destroyed and then be no more. Okay, so there's a lot of agreement and then there is some significant disagreement. Uh, let's pray and then we will dive into this topic again for a second week. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, for your truth, for your goodness and justice. May your word come alive as we study it tonight again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And again, I just want to say, um, it took me quite a journey, as I shared last, uh, last week. It took me quite a journey um, to, of studying to come from where most of us and where I grew up, which was this idea of eternal conscious torment, to move, it took me a little over two years to move to the annihilationist position. Uh, uh, lots of studying, lots of prayer. And I share that again to say, uh, first of all, there is no pressure. Anybody watching this? Watch with open hearts and open minds. Seek the scriptures for yourself. Feel no pressure, okay? There's no pressure on anyone to change their mind in a moment or, uh, or, to, or, or any of that sort of stuff. But examine and prayerfully study. Now, the question is, as we looked at last week, how did so many Christians, okay? And we talked about this, but just laying that foundation again for today. How did so many Christians come to have this assumption that, that, that uh, people who are in hell are consciously tormented forever and ever. Because, again, we want to respect that. When many, many Christians think something, we don't want to just disregard that uh, and not respect that. There's a reason for it. And as we saw last week, probably the biggest reason why so many Christians have just come to believe eternal conscious torment has to do with an assumption an assumption that, as we looked at last week, isn't actually in the Bible, okay? It's not a sinful assumption, but it is an assumption. And the assumption is that every human soul is immortal. That every human being, from the moment they're born, from the moment they're conceived, I should say, their soul is eternal forever 
and immortal. And, uh, and ultimately, as we looked at last week, that is not an assumption that's actually taught in the Bible. In fact, it was taught in Greek philosophy, which heavily influenced many of the early Christians who came out of the Roman Empire, which was saturated with Greek philosophy. They brought that into their Christianity, okay? In a couple of verses we looked at last week, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, okay? So Jesus clearly teaches that the soul is destroyed in hell. And we also looked at, uh, you know, 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, where it says, God alone has immortality, okay? Nobody else in the universe has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. Now, the question is, though, what about passages like Matthew, you know, 25, 46, which we're going to look at being in this message, and other passages which clearly seem to teach that the punishment in hell is eternal, that the punishment in hell is forever. Are you saying, Chris, are, are the annihilationists saying that the punishment of hell is not forever? Because the Bible sure seems to teach that the punishment is forever. And so I want to answer that question right off the bat. And the answer is, annihilationists agree. We all agree that the punishment of hell is forever, okay? The question is not whether you're a, you know, whether you're a traditionalist or whether you're an annihilationist, both agree. You know, the, the universalists are the only one that disagree on this one because the universalists would say that the punishment of hell is temporary. But the traditionalists and the annihilationists both agree that the punishment in hell is eternal and forever. The question is, how is that punishment experienced? Okay, really, really important. How is that punishment experienced? How is forever experienced, okay? And I'm just gonna throw up a little table, okay? So in the annihilation view, okay, um, and we see many scriptures which teach this, we see hell as the place where the wicked are destroyed. Well, guess what? Death is a forever punishment. It's permanent. You don't come back from the dead. You don't come back from the second death. You don't come back after the final judgment, okay? So death is forever. Death is final, okay? Now, in the eternal conscious torment view, you're not dead forever. You're actually alive forever in this terrible place of torment. But both, but both punishments are forever. The difference is life is something that is experienced consciously and death is something that cannot be experienced consciously. Death is forever. Eternal life is forever. Um, they're just different states of being, but both are permanent. Now, the question is, which forever punishment does the Bible describe? Okay, Because again, that's very important. I do not deny that the punishment of hell, nor do other uh, annihilationists, I do not deny that the punishment of hell is forever. Okay, it's permanent. Okay, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm not a universalist. Okay, so which forever punishment does the Bible describe? Dead forever or alive forever in torment? Well, you know, Romans 6.23, we'll just look at two quick passages before we hit Matthew 25. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, okay? Notice, that, like we looked at last week, the contrast throughout the Gospels is eternal life or death, right? James 1 verse 15, 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice that in none of these passages about the wages of sin, does the Bible say the wages of sin is eternal conscious torment. Or the wages of sin is, a, is to go to a place where you're consciously alive to be tormented forever and ever and ever. Throughout scripture, the wages of sin is death. And death is a permanent and final uh, punishment because it's forever. Now, what about Matthew? And so now we jump into one of the big questions that lots of people were asking last week in the, in the Q&A and during the week. What about Matthew 25 verses 41 to 46? Okay, what are we to make of those, of, of those passages? Well, let's jump into it, okay? Matthew chapter 25 verses 41 and, and, and 46. Okay, and this is Jesus speaking, and he's speaking about God on judgment day. Then he, that's God, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Okay, eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, so again, the punishment of hell is eternal. That's clear. I, I don't disagree with that. The annihilationist position does not dis, you know, uh, disagree with that. We agree with that. It has to. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. We have to agree with it. The, the punishment in hell is eternal. Now, the question is, is this referring, though, to eternal, eternally dead, finally dead, never coming back? Or is it eternally alive, suffering in forever torment? Well, Let's look elsewhere in the New Testament. Can we find other clues? Other places in the New Testament. We looked at a bunch of things, you know, from the Old Testament and Revelation last week. But are there other places in the New Testament that we didn't look at last week that can give us clues? You know, clues about how is this phrase eternal um, fire used in the New Testament? Even outside of Revelation. How is this phrase eternal fire used? Uh, eternal punishment. When the word eternal is used, how is that used? in other places of the New Testament. And then we can come back and we can see what kind of an eternal punishment Matthew 25 is talking about. So let's start with Jude 7, okay? Well, Jude chapter one, there's only one chapter in Jude, but so when I say Jude 7, it just means verse seven. So Jude chapter one, verse seven, Jude is giving a warning to believers, okay? And he's giving a warning uh, not to, you know, go into wickedness, and sexual immorality, and some of those things. And then he gives this warning in this example. He says to the Christians, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example, okay? So very important. Jude is saying to these New Testament Christians, Sodom and Gomorrah, he's referring to an Old Testament story. The Sodom and Gomorrah story is an example to us of what would happen to us by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there's that exact phrase, eternal fire, same phrase as Matthew 25. And we have a clear reference to something that actually happened in the Old Testament. Now, the question is, what does eternal fire mean in Jude 7? Because when we apply it to Sodom and Gomorrah, how was the fire that, that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah eternal? Um, is that fire still burning today? 
Is it burning right now? And the answer is, again, as we looked at some other examples of this last week in some other instances and passages, and the answer is no. The, the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, existed somewhere in the deserts of, of Judea, somewhere close to the Dead Sea. And, uh, and if you go there today, they're not even exactly sure where the cities are today. They just know they're somewhere in that area, but we don't know where they are. They're certainly not still burning today. There isn't a fire that just has been continually going and that will go for all of eternity over Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet the New Testament says Sodom and Gomorrah were judged with an eternal fire. What does eternal fire mean? Here's what it means. It means that fire burned once and utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah so that they would never exist again. The fire is eternal, not because it burns and 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 burns continually, 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 forever and ever and ever and ever. That's not what makes the fire eternal. What makes the fire eternal is that it's it's judgment fire from God that absolutely consumes Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Sodom and Gomorrah are gone forever. Okay? Sodom and Gomorrah are gone forever. So eternal fire is something that burns once and destroys forever. Okay? That's a very clear passage with a very clear, um, you know, reference to an Old Testament story, okay? And notice what Jude says is that the story of the eternal fire that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah is an example to us. Why? Because that is the kind of fire of hell. It is a fire that destroys, you know, that burns once and then destroys forever. Okay, that's the New Testament language. That's not, uh, you know, Chris just making something up. Because again, it doesn't, it's not, my authority isn't, the authority isn't what do I say. The authority is what does the scriptures say? Okay, now let's go back to Matthew 25 again. Because we want to go back there. We want to be sure that we're being true to the passage. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. So we just saw that exact phrase that in Jude about Sodom, so the eternal fire is one that burns once, but it burns completely, destroys forever. Now we get to verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now here's where, you know, people who have the assumption that the human soul exists forever. Again, remember, that assumption is an assumption that's not actually taught in Scripture. But if you have that assumption, when you read eternal punishment you automatically assume that the passage is teaching those eternal souls, those immortal souls go to somewhere where they are continually being punished forever and ever and ever and ever. Okay? But once you take away the assumption that the soul has to live forever, eternal punishment can very well mean the exact same thing as the eternal fire. It is a punishment that happens once and then is absolutely final. And I'm going to go elsewhere in the New Testament again. And I could show you a whole bunch of examples. I will just look at two from the book of Hebrews. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll stay out of Revelation. We looked at a bunch of Revelation last week. Some really good stuff there. But I want to, I'm trying to give you a broad view of the entire New Testament in these two weeks that we talk about hell. Let's look at it, Hebrews 9. And let's look at a couple of instances in the New Testament. And there's a bunch of others where eternal is attached to, where eternal, the word eternal describes something that only happens once but the effects of what happens once last forever, okay? So let's look first at Hebrews chapter 9, okay? Verses 11 and 12, all right? 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So here's what Jesus did. He entered once. How many times? Once. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. Okay? So Jesus secured for us an eternal. That means it lasts forever. Okay? It will go on forever and never end. He secured for us an eternal redemption. But does that word eternal redemption mean that Jesus must get up on that cross over and over and over and over and over and over continually for all of eternity, forever without end? Must he be on the cross? And the answer is obviously no. We see it in this verse. Eternal redemption refers to an act that happened once. Jesus went to the cross once. But the effects of that are that he purchased for us a redemption that lasts forever. Eternal redemption. In the same way, eternal fire and eternal punishment are something that happened once. When people, when the, when the wicked, those who reject Jesus are cast into hell, they're cast in once. It is a punishment that happens once, but the effects are permanent death and destruction and that lasts forever. Let's look at Hebrews 6 for just one more example. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go to maturity, not laying, uh, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So there's that word eternal again. And it's attached to the word judgment, God's judgment. Now here's the question. When God sits, when Jesus returns, is he going to sit in the seat of judgment to judge us on judgment day? And is that act of judgment going to actually not be a judgment day, but a judgment eternity? Is he going to, is it, when it says eternal judgment, is it referring to God's going to sit in judgment judging us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and ever, ever without end? Or is the judgment something that happens once? And then the consequences of that judgment last forever. And again, obviously within this passage, it, it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's eternal judgment, not in the sense that the judgment ha keeps happening forever. It's eternal in the sense that it happens once, the consequences are forever. In the same way, okay? In the exact same way. Back to Matthew 25, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. They will go into punishment once. But the effects of that punishment, and this, is, and this is deeply sad. This is deeply, deeply sad that people made in the image of God would reject Jesus and be cast into hell and the judgment will be permanent. It's eternal. They will be punished once, but the effect is they're gone forever. Gone forever. Punishment happens once, the effects last forever. Now, someone might say, well, what about the passage that says the worms don't die? Because there's a passage, right? There's one verse in the New Testament, and it says that in hell, the worms don't die. So clearly, if the worms don't die, hell must be forever. Okay? 
Well, I'm gonna show you in every one of these cases, by the way, where it looks like there's an open and shut case for this, we will almost every single time find that this is a quote from the Old Testament that literally and, and clearly refers to death, not ongoing living forever. And this is another one of those examples. Let's go, let's go and look at the passage. Mark 9, 47 to 48. Jesus is talking. And he says this. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. So that, by the way, is a warning. Hell is a terrible place. Okay? To, for human beings to be destroyed. The destruction of the wicked is not a, a good thing. Okay? This is not, it, it, it's not a wonderful thing. It's, it's an awful thing. It's not as awful as being kept alive forever and ever and ever and ever in torment. But our good God is just and would never do that. But Mark 9, 47 to 48, we said hell is an awful thing. Now look what Jesus says. Then to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay? So we've seen, last week we already saw the fire that is not quenched. In many passages, that's Old Testament uh, prophetic language for a fire that burns something up, not a fire that keeps going forever. But the worm does not die, okay? Um, now, so is this a passage of eternal conscious torment? Well, first of all, it's talking about worms. So perhaps we could build a doctrine of eternal conscious torment for worms. Um, but let's look a little deeper here because I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to get at, right? And, uh, and so this is actually a quote from the Old Testament a very famous, the last chapter, the last passage of the last chapter of the book of Isaiah, one of the, one of the biggest uh, and most important prophetic books in the Old Testament. That's where this worm does not die quote is coming from, okay? And it's a, and it's a prophecy of what God's going to do when he returns to judge. And so it says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, in his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those, look at this, slain by the Lord shall be many. So first of all, I want you to notice when God comes on judgment day, is he tormenting people or is he slaying people? And, and, the, and the prophecy is very clear. He's, he's killing. It's, he's slaying. It's, it's, it's an awful passage. It's a, it's, um, you know, it's a troubling passage. But what is God doing? And then it says in verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the what? Okay, very, very important. And they shall go out and look on the what? The dead bodies, okay, of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Okay, so this is super important, okay? We have to always look. What, you know, when Jesus is quoting a passage, what passage is he quoting? And in this passage, what do we clearly see? These worms that don't die, what are they feeding on? Are they feeding on living human beings or are they, are, are they feeding on dead human beings? And the answer is they're feeding on dead bodies. Friends, this is, this is exactly the annihilationist position. That in hell, those who reject Jesus are destroyed. In this picture here, you say, well, why would... You know, what's with this picturesque language, the worm shall not die? You can clearly see in this passage, the worm shall not die, specifically does not and cannot mean the people are alive. 
Worms only feed on dead bodies. And we see that in this passage, okay? So you say, well, what's the purpose of saying the worms don't die? And again, this is where there is so much stuff that when we look at the original context of the passage, the context brings some of these alive that we don't see in our modern times. This is why we need the church. It takes a village to read the Bible. We learn together. We share the different gifts and scholars help us to understand these things, okay? So here's what you have to understand. In Bible times, it was considered incredibly shameful for a dead body to be left out in the open and not be buried. So you would, you would never leave a loved one or even someone who was not a loved one, but you would never leave a dead body uh, out in the open uh, because that was a sign of great disrespect, contempt, and shame towards that person and towards that person's family. Okay? And this is all through Bible times, Old Testament, New Testament. Okay? And you'll see stories. There's actually several stories in the Old Testament. One of them is 1 Samuel 31. If you go back this week sometime, mark that passage down. 1 Samuel 31 is a story. You know, after Saul dies in the battle with the Philistines, right? He dies in the battle with the Philistines. And what do the Philistines do? Okay? The Philistines take his body. It's kind of gruesome. They take his dead body and they fasten it to the city walls of one of their cities. I think it's Bet Shan. They fasten his body. Now we all kind of go, when we read this story, uh, we just kind of go, ugh, that's gross. But what happens next, we don't really understand. Because it says that a bunch of Israelite men from Jabesh Gilead, a bunch of men from Jabesh Gilead get up in the middle of the night and they actually risk their lives. They risk their lives to sneak over to Bet Shan, to this Philistine city, to take Saul's body down in the middle of the night and then to take him home and to bury him in the ground. Now you say, like, wh like, why would you do that? No, I mean, risking your lives for Saul if he was alive, I can get that. But risking your life to go and grab a dead body uh, after, you know, you know, after he's dead, obviously, it's a dead body. Like, why would you do that? Why would you take that risk? And the answer is because Saul's body being unburied and being displayed like that was a sign of deep contempt for the whole nation of Israel. It was, it was a shame on the entire nation. So these men were seeking to alleviate the shame on, the, on, on Saul's tribe and on the entire nation of Israel. And later, you'll see a few chapters later into 2 Samuel, you'll see that David rewards these men for doing it. Okay? So all of this makes a lot more sense when you understand the original context that a body needs to be buried and that it's shameful for the body not to be buried. Now, why would Isaiah 66 talk about on Judgment Day Though those who have done evil and they have been wicked and they have fought against, you know, God's people and God, when he comes back and he slays them, why would it say that the worm doesn't die? I'll tell you why. The bodies are dead. The worm, the worm doesn't die is again, prophetic, prophetic hyperbole, prophetic picture language means that nothing is going to stop the worms from finishing the job. In other words, those bodies aren't going to get buried. Their, their shame is going to last forever. That, that's what it's saying. The bodies will decompose. The worms will finish their job. It's not like these passages are not teaching that these worms, God will miraculously cause these worms to never die. It's picture language. It's prophetic language. And it means the shame will not be taken away. The bodies will not be buried in that sense. And it's the idea of permanent shame. Okay? So if we go back to Mark 9, 47 to 48, 
And we see this again. Jesus says, and if your eye causes you to sin, you know, it's better uh, for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, two points we need to remember when we read that verse. First of all, worms only eat dead bodies, not living ones. And second of all, the worms don't die is signifying shame. That those who have rejected Jesus, you know, on the, on, the, on the final day of judgment, those who hate Jesus, when we all see how amazing he is and that he created the universe and there's people who actually hate him and have refused his salvation, the shame of, that, of those decisions, the shame of, of what those people became, in a sense, lasts forever, okay? It doesn't go away. Well, now I want to I shift gears a little bit on this whole topic of hell. And I want to talk about the overarching, you know, storyline of the Bible. And this is really important anytime we're building an important doctrine, okay? This is super important. I have to tell you over and over again, it is so easy. You know, people can build, you can build, you know, any doctrine pretty much you want. By taking a verse from here, a verse from here, you know, one verse, two verse, three verses, you can take a few little verses, boop, 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 tie them together, and you can make a, a doctrine about almost anything you want. And so one of the things, whenever we're building a, a doctrine, a belief system on the Bible, we don't want to just pull one or two verses. And that's one of the things I've been showing you in this hell topic, uh, that there are you know, over a hundred. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of passages which speak of destruction. So that's a good thing. But there's something that in some ways is just as important. And that is, what, what does the entire arc of scripture say? From the beginning, Genesis, you know, through the gospels to the end in Revelation, what is the storyline of scripture telling us about the penalty for sin? Okay. And this is super, super important. So when we look at the storyline of the Bible, because the storyline of the Bible actually will tell us, it will see when we look at this, when we step back and see the big picture, we're going to see that the storyline of the Bible is actually very clear about what the punishment for sin is. And it's not eternal conscious torment. Okay. But I, I just want to put up something there so that you can uh, just see this. So when we want to see what the storyline of the Bible says about something, in this case, the punishment for sin in hell, we first of all want to look at the beginning. Beginnings are important. What did God say to Adam and Eve? What was the consequences of what they did? Second, we want to look at the solution. You know, the climax of, of Scripture in many ways, the gospel. Now, maybe not quite the climax, maybe that is the very end. You know where it's all healed. But we want to look, what, did G, what penalty did Jesus pay? How did he solve the problem that sin brought into the world? And then finally, we want to go to the end. How does this story end? And, and in that storyline, what do we see proclaimed in the grand story of the Bible in terms of what is the penalty for sin? Is it death or is it eternal conscious torment? Well, let's start with the beginning. Okay, so we want to look at three parts. The beginning, the solution, the gospel, the end, the conclusion, okay? So beginnings are important, okay? So what happens, what is the very first conversation? What's the very first conversation in the entire Bible between God and human beings, okay? And it happens in Genesis chapter two, 
verses 15 to 17. This is the first, these are the first words in scripture that God speaks to people. And here's what he says. And this is right after God has created, you know, human beings. So Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Okay, very important. First thing here, God is a good father. God is a good parent, okay? This is really important because what does a good parent do? A good parent communicates clearly to their children the boundaries. What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? And the consequences. What will happen if you don't do what you're supposed to do, okay? That's, that's what good parents do, okay? If you're out there and you're a parent, let me just tell you this. Good parenting means you don't give consequences to your children for things you never told them that they didn't know were wrong, right? Isn't that true? Like you, you don't discipline your kids for jumping on the bed unless you've told them don't jump on the bed because how else do they know? Of course you're going to jump on the bed. It's fun to jump on the bed. You know, when we go to hotels, I still sometimes jump on the bed, okay? Jumping on the bed is awesome. Jumping from bed to bed is awesome, okay? So if you don't, so of course your kids are going to jump on the bed. Of course your kids are going to have pillow fights in the kitchen. Why wouldn't they? The kitchen is a great spot to have pillow fights. So when your kids do these kinds of kid things, you don't discipline them. You don't punish them unless you first made it clear. Here's the boundaries. You're allowed to do this, but you're not allowed to do this. And if you do this, here's the consequences, right? That's what good parents do. That's what God's doing in Genesis 2. It's clear communication. If you, here's what you can do. Look at all the freedom Adam and Eve have. There's like, there's only one rule. You can eat from any tree in the garden, okay? Plus do whatever else you want. There's only one thing you're not allowed to do, and that is eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing, okay? So God clearly sets the boundaries. That's because he's a good father, okay? And then he clearly gives the consequences. Now I want you to notice what are the consequences. Does God say, in the moment you eat from that tree, you will now deserve eternal conscious torment. That's not what he says. He says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now imagine you're a parent and, uh, and you say, uh, you say to your, your child, because you're trying to teach your, your kids responsibility, okay? And so your teenage child, uh, you're trying to teach him or her to, you know, take responsibility for their homework. So you, you, you give them a consequence and you say, you might give them a consequence or boundary like, okay? Uh, if I, you know, if, if you can't be trusted to concentrate on your homework, then I'm going to have to take away your phone because it's distracting you, Okay? So the responsibility is get your homework done. If you fail to do that, the consequence is I have to take away the distraction. Or perhaps you might say, uh, I'm trying to teach you priorities and homework's the priority. So if, if you get your homework done, yes, you can go shopping with your friends on the weekend. But if you don't get your homework done, so it's clear communication, 
then you haven't got your priorities straight, then you can't go shopping with your friends. Now imagine your child, your teenage child, doesn't get their homework done. And so now you have to implement the consequence. So now you told your child, uh, if you don't finish your homework, you won't be able to go shopping with your friends. But now imagine that you, in a, some sense, kind of pull a fast one on them and you lock them in their room for the entire weekend with a bag of unsugared Cheerios and no access to the internet or TV or human contact. And you say, this is your discipline for not finishing your homework. Now your kid goes, what are you talking about? You said I wouldn't be able to go shopping. And you say, well, you're not able to go shopping, but I'm also throwing, and, and, and your child goes, whoa, this is way more serious than what you warned me. And obviously we would say that is, that is not a good example of parenting. That's not a good example of being reasonable. It's not a good example of communicating well. Now I want us just to think about it. And again, there's no pressure. I, I do not, I spent much of my life as someone who believed eternal conscious torment. Okay? So I do not judge anyone with that view. I'm, I'm merely asking you to consider. What does that say about God if in his first conversation with humans, he sets out the boundaries? And this is what disobedience will mean. And he says, and if you disobey, you will die. But why would he say that the penalty is death if in fact... You know what? It's actually something even worse than that. Actually, you're going to be raised to life after you die and you're going to live forever in a place called hell in eternal torment forever and ever and ever and ever without end. Imagine Adam and Eve waking up someday and going, hey, wait a minute, I thought the penalty was death. Well, actually, it's something different than that. Is that, can we reconcile that? And again, this is not a criticism of the view. I'm asking us, to think through our view. Does that reconcile with who God is? Because in the beginning, he talked to Adam and Eve, he set the boundaries clearly, and he also clearly defined the consequences. He said, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. Okay? Very important. Now, Paul in Romans 6.23 understood what God was saying. Paul is looking back to Genesis and the beginning when he says this. Romans 6.23, we've looked at this passage a bunch of times. For the wages of sin is death. Okay? He's basing that. That's, that's straight out of Genesis 2. The wages of sin is death. Paul agrees. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. Death is the result of sin. So that's the beginning. When we look at the beginning of the grand story, at the beginning, we do not see a warning about eternal conscious torment. We see a clear definition, sin leads to death. We see it confirmed elsewhere as well. Well, now let's look at the solution. So that was the beginning of the story. Let's go to the middle of the story, the Gospels. Really, really important part. When Jesus comes, okay, he's going to solve the problem. So Adam and Eve sinned and they brought death to the human race. They brought death and uh and destruction, all those sorts of things they brought on the human race. So now we can learn a lot about what the penalty for sin is by asking the question, what penalty did Jesus pay? Because we can all agree as Christians, right? We can all agree 
that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, right? So if Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, that means he took on himself, he took the penalty that we would have had and he took it for us so that those of us who accept him don't need to bear it. So now the question is, did Jesus suffer eternal conscious torment? Did he die and go to a place where he was tormented consciously forever and ever? Or did he even go anywhere to hell and experience conscious torment for three days in order to take our punishment from us? Or did Jesus take a different penalty? Because if he took a different penalty, he had to take the penalty that's coming to us. And here's what we find in Romans 5. Paul clearly details this in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ did what for us? He died for us. He didn't experience conscious torment forever and ever for us. He experienced death for us. Why? Because death is a penalty for sin. It just matches up. The story is consistent. God said to Adam and Eve, if you do wrong and disobey me, the penalty is sin. Jesus comes along in the Gospels, and what penalty does he pay? He pays the penalty of sin. Now, I'm going to read you a whole chunk now of Romans 5, and then we'll move to the end of the story. Okay? But Romans, or uh, it should say Romans, yeah, Romans 5. I have it wrong in my uh, notes here. But Romans 5, and I'm just going to read you a, a bunch of verses here. Okay? So I want you to follow along because Paul is going to explore this at length. So Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and what came through sin? Death through sin. Okay? What came as a result of sin? Eternal conscious torment? No. Death came because of sin. We keep going. And so death spread to all men because all sin, by the way, we can't blame Adam and Eve. We're not, you know, death isn't here just because of Adam and Eve. Death is here because we all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but the sin, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Skip verse 16 to verse 17, just for time's sake. For if... Because of one man's trespass, so what did, what happened? One man, talking about Adam, what happened because of Adam's sin? Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I ask again, what is the penalty for sin? God has clearly communicated it. The penalty for sin is death. That's what it's been ever since Adam and Eve. What is the penalty that Jesus paid? Death. He paid that penalty, so ultimately we could live forever. Okay? And this brings us to the conclusion. The beginning of the story, God says, disobey me, death. The Gospels, Jesus comes to solve the problem. He solves the problem of death. He takes the penalty on himself. The penalty is death. The end of the story. What happens at the end? 
death is defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? The storyline of the Bible is around this idea. When we think, look at sin and punishment and death and hell, the entire storyline of the Bible confirms that death is the problem. The problem is death because of human sin. I've got a little, you know, uh, table up there for you. The solution, Jesus dies to pay the penalty for sin. The conclusion, no more death. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now let me ask you something. Is death really swallowed up? If there remains in the universe a place where millions and millions of people remain alive forever and ever and ever, screaming in agony and torment, can we reconcile with this verse that death has been swallowed up? What about Revelation 21 verse 4? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Now look at this. Neither shall there be, this is beautiful, this is the hope. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more death, no more crying, nor pain. Now look at that, not only that, the former things have passed away. What are the former things? Sin. Suffering, rebellion against God, hatred. All of those things are no more after, G- after the new heaven, new earth, after Jesus comes back, they're no more. They don't exist. Now the question is, how can Revelation say that these things don't exist anymore, that the former things have passed away, that they're gone, if in reality there exists a place in the universe called hell where millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people exist forever and ever and ever screaming in agony and torment and rebellion against God. How could God say in Revelation 21 verse 4, how could he promise that these things are extinct if they aren't extinct? Now, someone might say, well, well, death, Chris, death means separation from God. That, that's, what I, that's what I said for years too. And again, I, I want you to hear me. Receive this message in the spirit it's given. I'm not criticizing. I've, I've, I held this view for so much of my life. I'm not criticizing. I don't expect people to just change their minds about anything. I, all I want is for us to look in the scriptures and prayerfully think about what they say and who is God. But when I used to defend for many years the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, this is what I said too. I said, well, death means separation from God. It doesn't mean death. It it means separate from God. Um, And first of all, I just want to agree that there is a, a part of death. The idea of death does include, as a part of the definition, being separated from God. Because God is the giver of life. So if you're separated from him, you, you, you cease to live. 
Okay, but separation from God is included. But what if we took that definition? So let's take that definition, because I'll, I'll agree with anybody who wants to say death has to include the idea of separation from God. Okay. Okay. So let's put that into our definition. And let's read Revelation 21 verse 4 again. Okay? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, I've put in brackets. Those are my words. Those aren't in the Bible. But I put in brackets that part of the definition. Because people will say death means separation from God. Okay, let's take that as part of the definition. Let's just put it straight in there. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, which means separation from God, and separation from God shall be what? No more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Guess what? God is destroying death. And that means everything that death is, God is going to destroy. And death includes separation from God. So you know what that means? When God destroys death, he is destroying separation itself. After God destroys death, no one can be separated from God anymore. Now, how could God destroy death, which includes separation from him, and there still be a place where tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people live separated from God in agony and torment and rebellion and hatred towards him forever and ever and ever without him? Friends, I don't think these passages can be reconciled. Because the Bible is very clear that when Jesus returns, the victory is final. It's absolute, utter victory. Death is not just moved to a certain place. Separation from God and pain and suffering aren't moved to a certain place. They are made extinct. They're gone. The wicked are burned up. Death itself is destroyed. And after that, the universe is a new heaven and a new earth. There is no more of all that other stuff anywhere. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That includes separation from God. Nobody will be separated from him ever again or anymore. There will be a new heaven and a new earth with no more crying or pain because the former things have passed away. I'll just put up that verse one more time. The former things have passed away. They're in the past. They are no more. Friends, this should excite us. God isn't going to just contain evil in eternity. He's going to obliterate evil. God is not just going to restrict pain and suffering. He's going to obliterate pain and suffering. Good is not just going to be stronger than evil. Good is going to be all that exists and evil will be extinct. Oh, that's so good. That is such good news. That is such good news. Let me put up an outline and then I'll pray. And then we'll head into the Q&A. Outline of human history, past, present, and future. Adam and Eve sin. They bring death and separation from God on the human race. Number two, Jesus dies for our sins and pays the penalty of death. That's the gospel. 
At the second coming, Jesus will destroy death and sin and evildoers in hell. That will be an awful day. Judgment day will be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and, and it will be an awful day. And those who hate Jesus and reject Jesus will be cast into hell and destroyed. But then, finally, good wins. Good wins. New heavens, new earth, no more sin, no more death, no more separation from God, no more evildoers for all of eternity. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel. God wins. Bow your heads with me and let's praise and worship his name. Heavenly Father, we praise and worship you. You are a good father. You are just. You are good. And your victory over evil will be absolutely total, final, and complete. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for offering your forgiveness to us all. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen.